Thank you, Mike. We joined the church at the same time that Mike and Cindy did, so we've had a long run together. My name's Dory Brown. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, the person you normally see here is Brad Burkfalk, our interim senior pastor, and he and his wife, Roxy, are on a well-deserved vacation. They are driving and driving uh, for days and days <laughs> to some glorious places up in the Pacific Northwest, so um, we wish him well. We are going to continue our, our series of Summer in the Psalms, and this morning's psalm is Psalm 51, which is the psalm that has had the very most impact on me maybe even the most impact of all of scripture. Several years ago, about over 20 years ago, over, well over 20 years ago, um, my husband and I had been together for 20 years and we had come to a place in our marriage that was very, very difficult. Uh, we were both in counseling, we were in together, we were doing it separately, and we were also meeting with our pastor here at the time who was Garth. And I remember at one point I was sitting and talking with Garth and I was at the end of my rope and I said, I do not even know what or how to pray. And he looked at me pointedly and he said, Dory, pray the Psalms, pray the Psalms. So um, before we start up talking about praying the Psalms, I'm going to read this morning's Psalm 51 all the way through. I'm going to use the New Living Translation, and you can follow along in your Bible, or you might just close your eyes and let these words from the living Word of God pour into you. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins, wash me clean from my guilt, Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back the joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer it. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken heart. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. The bulls, again, will be sacrificed on your altar. Pray with me, please. 
So God, we come to you echoing the prayer of um, Samuel. Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. Speak to us individually as a church body. Lord, uh, we need to hear your words, and we so bring them close in and help us to know how to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. So the theme of Psalm 51 is confession and repentance. And the first line of our confession, which we will, I will be going through the confession that we'll be using when we have communion as a confession we've used over the years. And throughout the sermon, I will be inserting lines of that confession. The first line of our confession is, we are sorry, God. Hear our repentance for our wayward handling of life. So what I did with our pastor, Garth, was I did what he said. Systematically, I went through all 150 psalms, even though I'd read them probably two or three times before altogether. This time, it was completely different. The words had come alive. I saw raw emotion. I saw complaining of life. I saw people clenching their fists at God, complaining to him, blaming him. There were also praises and thanksgivings, of course, but this time, the flip side was highlighted for me, and it is just what I needed. I needed to be able to go to God without sanitizing how I felt, my frustration, my anger. I needed permission to do this, and I got it from God. Reading Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, he describes a movement throughout the Psalms, and it was even more heartening. He says that there's not any neat grid of this largest book of the Bible. That is too much variety. It's not sequential, not categorized. He looks at this Psalms through a master's eye, and he also relates them to our lives. He writes, The life of faith expressed in the Psalms is focused on the two decisive moves of faith that are always underway, but which, by which we are regularly surprised and which we always resist. Out of a settled orientation, we are thrust into a season of disorientation, and from that context of disorientation to a new orientation, surprised by the gift of God, a new coherence made to us when we thought all was lost. He continues, as children of the Enlightenment, we have censored and selected around the voices of darkness and disorientation, seeking to go from strength to strength, from victory to victory. But such a way not only ignores the Psalms, it is a lie in terms of our experiences. And as human beings, usually it takes something that is right in our face to acknowledge that we are in a time of disorientation for it's a time that is painful and it's confusing and integral to that place is that we feel out of control. Our denial and avoidance serves us well as we get on with life, get on with our plans, get on with living with, in a world where we strive to make sense of things. Denial and avoidance serves us well until they start to do us a disservice with our lives when we try to get on with our plans. And we stead stray and we get to a harmful to us, a harmful to others place where we find ourselves off of the good path. Hear these next words from our confession. 
We have squandered time, we have hoarded money, we have avoided challenges and used others. We have borne waiting grievously, illness stubbornly, trials reluctantly, and responsibilities half-heartedly. It is only when things get really painful, out of control, that we are so disoriented that we finally stop. Like before the time of having GPS and we drive, thinking we were knowing where we were going, not admitting it, and finally realizing we were so lost, you finally had to stop. And that is exactly where God wants us, right in the palm of his hands. And that's where I was in my pastor's office, and I was grasping for anything to right-side our marriage. I'd come to Psalm 51 at just the right time, and the first two lines struck me. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. I liked that. I liked knowing that I was coming to a God who was merciful and constant. It made sense to ask for mercy from a God like that. The next line. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stains of my sin. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Perhaps you can relate. You might be in a conflict with someone, and uh, you may, it may be so clear that it is so clear what that other person needs to do. So clear. You know just how they should change, when they should do it, and how much. We see people only through our own sets of eyes. And it hadn't really come home to me that the reason I needed his mercy and compassion was because of my guilt, my sins. And that gave me pause. And so I stayed with the psalm. I studied it, and I meditated it, and prayed on it. And this time, this psalm gave me conviction. And it convicted me and gave me the courage to follow the Spirit's gentle leading. Had I only stayed with the conviction, I would not have been able to bear it. I would have had to numb or distract myself. We do it all the time with conviction. We ignore that nagging sense that there is business we need to attend to, but we put it off. This time I didn't. And instead, I spent time with the Lord. I went to Doug, apologized, repented. We did it mutually. We did it mutually over the next days weeks, months, and actually even years. And we went to God together. What freedom. That's what confession can bring. Here's the next line from, um, actually, this is from Psalm 32.3. But when I refused to confess my sin, I was weak and miserable. I groaned all day long. The freedom, I mentioned the energy it took to be in denial or even to be right, to stick to my guns, that energy was freed up. And indeed, the joy of my salvation was restored, and I'd come to a new orientation, not to a reorientation, but through disorientation to a whole new place. This was the kindness of God. And you know the verse in Romans 2.4, it is the kindness of God which leads us to repentance. So the psalm is written by a man who has become disoriented by his own doing. In my Bible, there's a heading at the beginning that says, For the choir director, a psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. 
leading up to this, this is the whole story of David in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles. David is a shepherd, David is a musician, David is the one who slayed Goliath, David who had went in and out of Saul's favor. And then when he uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba and then led uh, her husband into battle where he was killed, what a story. And there's so much more to the story. But for these purposes, for this psalm, this is in the context of 2 Samuel 11 and 12. David was in a place of disorientation as he had been confronted by Nathan the prophet. Nathan tells him the story of another man whose wrongdoing was so egregious that David was outraged and he was ready to wreak vengeance on that man. Nathan turns to David and said, you are that man. And David responds, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, there are many consequences for that flagrant sin, consequences that will be played out to the rest of David's life. But the weight of the guilt, the guilt that separated him from God, it was removed. Still in orientation, as he realizes full of what he's done, he comes to his senses and he falls on his knees. When we read the psalm from David's hand, the pride is gone. His deceit is gone. He is laying himself at the feet of God where he, he reminds God and himself of God's mercy, his care, sovereignty, which brings us to the next line of our confession. We have doubted your care, mistrusted your providence, distorted your power, and ignored your love. And then David says that God is the only one who can forgive. He asks him to cleanse him of his sin thoroughly. It's as if he realizes it's his very nature that needs to be remade. He can't do it himself. Only God can make him new. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sins. And against you, you alone, have I sinned, he says. What does that mean? This sin was between David and Uriah, David and Bathsheba, even David and the nation he ruled. Brueggemann makes these points. Real sin is always a violation between us and God. There's no getting around it. We might say, well, it's just between me and my spouse, or me and my friend, or me and one of my kids, or me and work, me and money. But really, he's saying all sin is ultimately against God a violation of God's law, the way God has made things to run the world. This does not mean others are not hurt. They are hurt because we have taken matters into our own hands, violated the way God has showed us to live, thumbed our nose at God as if we're saying, I really know better. I'll just go my own way. So this next line of our confession, and here there's the admission of sin against others and also of God and God's great gift to us, forgiveness. We have neglected our discipleship, injured our relationship, sabotaged our fellowship, and underrated your forgiveness. David is prostrate before God. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. And then comes verse 6. And in my Bible, right next to that verse, I have scribbled, this is the key. You desire honesty from the heart. 
so you can teach me to be wise in my inmost being. God desires us to walk in truth, to live in the truth, to face the truth. It's for our good. Truth leads to freedom. Like it says elsewhere in the Bible, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. There are many layers to that. So there are many ways to become disoriented, and one way which is all too common is that we believe something about ourselves, our relationships, our lives, which is not true. Then we live as if everything is one way when it is not that way. When we do that, we will eventually trip up and we will reap the consequences of unhealth, unhealthy relationship, unhealthy practices at work, unhealthy ways we treat our bodies. It goes on and on, and we live this way as an orientation until the truth is revealed and we're placed into a place of disorientation. I thought it was okay between us. I thought we were good. Kids seemed like they were fine. Work was just fine. I was so healthy until some of this is due to sin. Some of this is due to living just on this side of God's kingdom fully coming to the earth. But in each of these cases, confession is a way out. Confession of sin when it's that. Confession of I don't know what it takes to make it better. Confession of I know I'm in the wrong, but I do not have it in me to make amends. Confession of frustration when things just don't get resolved and remain in seeming chaos. Basically, it is confessing, I need you, God. I need you. David was in a dangerous place having flaunted God in the murder and adultery and then living with Bathsheba for the whole world to see. His sin was against Uriah and Bathsheba, but more than that, he was flaunting God's commands. What if Nathan had not confronted David? What if David was not convicted, admitted his sin, and repented? What next thing could he have done? How far down that road of his own doing would he have gone? Thank God. He was a man of great power, and he was humbled. Thank God. Do you see what a mercy it is when God convicts us? What road could we end up on if we keep going down roads that are away from God's good plan? And then David pleads to be washed, to bring back his joy, remove the stains of his seal. He even pleads that the Holy Spirit would not be taken from him. Brueggemann helps us there, and he says, do not take this as a point of doctrine. David realizes that he took the power and anointing of God's Spirit for granted and how he's completely dependent on God's Spirit for his leading, for his wisdom, for his life. We certainly can dampen our awareness and yielding to the Spirit which animates our lives, which connects us in all ways to God. He realizes it is not what he can do to bring him back into God's grace. He is left disoriented and humbled. He has no control. He is at the mercy of God to restore and forgive. There is no such thing as self-atonement. He realizes what God wants is a change of heart. The sacrifice you want is a broken spirit, a broken and repentant heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. He has come to a place of new orientation. 
And the last two verses are generally thought to have been added later by the generation between captivity and rebuilding. They're making David's repentance their own, imagining how it will go when God forgives and restores. That's what we do. We read this prayer, we read it centuries later, and we bring it right into our own context where it's meant to be. So we come to God with humility, at times desperate, and prayer, which brings us to the last line of our confession. Forgive us now, we pray, and let us try again. Sensitive to your spirit and commit it to your will. To return to my marriage, apologizing and repenting became a way of life for us. Neither of us had ever seen our parents apologize to each other, ever admit any kind of wrong. But there was a change that we were able to make. And now this practice has extended to our kids, and we see it now to their kids. These words, forgive us now, we pray, and let us try again. When we're talking to people, it translates to, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I didn't mean to hurt you. Could you please forgive me? Can I please, can we, can we try it again? It takes courage, and it takes resolve. And I do know that there are times when apologies is, is not what is needed, that there is more that needs to happen. And so then we, we continue to be get, light, get guided by the Spirit. Now, the Spirit may lead you to confess not only to God, but to another person. Perhaps the person you had wronged was one thing, but you need to first confess it to someone else, as God puts people in our lives to be God with skin on to confess to, to see the love and forgiveness in their, li in their eyes as they say to us, along with God, you are forgiven. James chapter 5, it says, Confess your sins to one another. Pray for each other that you may be healed. As we confess the infection of, healed and its, of sin and its cleanse, we are on our way to healing. I've experienced this more than one time, and I highly recommend it. We can do it at any point as God leads. And even this morning, when we are done in your conversations with those who are around, I wonder if there might be a conversation or a beginning of a conversation that might start. It's a practice. And now we come to one of the good practices the church does regularly. We come to a time of communion. Communion is a sacrament where we know that God is initiating it and God is active and present in this. We come to the table aware of our need for forgiveness, healing, and freedom. Come knowing that you are completely, completely known, completely loved. God loves you not because you're good, God loves you because God is good. This is the God to whom we come as we pray, as we prepare for communion. We confess as a church family, as individuals, and in solidarity with our brothers and sisters, and ask for sensitivity to God's leading if there is further conversation and confessing that is needed. So often it's a process. Let's say the confession together slowly. We are sorry, God. Hear our repentance for our wayward handling of life. We have squandered time, hoarded money, avoided challenges, and used others. 
We have borne waiting grievously, illness stubbornly, trials reluctantly, and responsibility half-heartedly. We have doubted your care, mistrusted your providence, distorted your power, and ignored your love. We have neglected our discipleship, injured our relationship, sabotaged our fellowship, and underrated your forgiveness. Forgive us now, we pray, and let us try again. Sensitive to your spirit and committed to your will. Amen. And hear these words of assurance from chapter from, from the first chapter of 1 John. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now hear these words that were delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night was he, when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we accept Jesus' invitation to partake in communion. We remember that we do this with Christ followers all over the world. And we do them with Christ followers from the past in the present, and we anticipate doing it with Jesus in person when he comes fully into his kingdom. Pray with me, please. Thank you so much for inviting us to your table. Nourish us with these symbols of your body and your blood. Thank you for your presence here with us. Help us to be like the two who walked with you on the road to Emmaus, having their eyes opened as they partook of this meal. Open our eyes, open our ears, our hearts to you. We are all yours. Amen. The gifts of God for the people of God.